Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. No world today, no dead plants. Nope. None of that. I've temporarily somewhere else. So yeah. <laughs> and the basket is totally rigged up because I forgot my mic stand. So <laughs> <laughs> hey, you sound pretty good. I think you're doing fine. It sounds great to me. And today we're joined by Brooks Westbrook, who has a perfectly white room. Now I haven't seen the floor of this room before, but I'm assuming the floor is white as well, except for the blue couch. That's the whole room is white except for the blue couch. That's I perpetually <laughs> live in a void <laughs> at this point. <laughs> I was going to say that probably means his message is pure, right? <laughs> there you go. Pure is driven white paint. <laughs> so very interesting. So today we are talking about the data-driven lens. Um, so what do you mean by this, Brooks? What do you mean by the data-driven lens? I mean, I have glasses on and they reflect my monitor, which really stinks. But Yeah, I think it... Uh... I think probably at a base level, the way we can characterize that is just uh, getting to a point where from a network design standpoint and a network operation standpoint, that all of the things that we do and all of the decisions we make are backed up by supporting evidence, whether that evidence is information that we vend off of a system, whether that evidence is um, something that we've tested and validated in a lab, but as a general rule of thumb, moving towards a model that all of the things we do, we have supporting evidence behind it. So not focused on just the theory. I mean, the theory is a good thing, by the way. And I think that understanding, and actually, this is another part of the conversation, I think. Um, the theory is a good thing, but what you're saying is you're saying, if I build a design, I actually want to find a way to test it, to know for a fact that it works the way that I want it to work, or it's doing what I expect it to do. That's what you're, that's what you're getting at. Yeah, exactly. Because I think that in a lot of cases, and I mean, you and I have both seen this personally, that um, a lot of times theory does not always map to the reality of what's been implemented in software or hardware. And the only way in which you can expose any of those deltas is to prove it, whether it's in, uh, you know, emulated environment, physical environment, um, you know, in general, validating assumptions. Okay. Okay. Now I've run into this when I was working on mobile ad hoc networks, believe it or not, a long time ago, where we had this big argument going within the ITF over whether we should care more about the emulated results or we should care more about the theoretical understanding of how the protocol works. Now, would you say that's a valid argument or is that kind of like, eh, you know, really, you kind of need to know both. It's not an either or, it's a both and. How would you, how would you? I would say would it's say definitely it's a both and. Like you need, you're always going to need a body of people who are seeing the forest for the trees and, you know, looking forward um, um, to additional ways that you can optimize, you know, finite state machines, which in a lot of ways is the world that we live in. Um, um, but you, you also need to be validating that those assumptions that are being made and the way that you're going about designing those finite state machines is actually having the attended outcome that you want. And, you know, I think that as we've 
transition to a world where we're talking more about intent driven networking and you know other things that are more outcome based uh, I, I think that really what I'm getting at is we should care a lot more about the outcome and not necessarily the how we get to it okay interesting yeah so I mean I, I guess what you're saying is we all need to become statisticians no <laughs> <laughs> So how do, how does that change the approach then? If it's outcome driven, uh, based on what the industry is largely doing today, what's different? So I don't know that it's uh, hugely different. It's more, I think, in the context of, you know, for me personally, conversations that I'm having with customers. A lot of it is less about. A lot of the conversations we're having today are less around nuts and bolts and more around like what is the high level problem I'm trying to solve and then help guide me to what are the what are the underlying components and bits that I need to be able to solve that problem effectively and sustainably. So, you know, the sustainability piece being a really big component of it, whereas you know, the networks that we're building get bigger, number of boxes are beginning to outnumber number of people that are actually managing those devices. You know the the standardization of how we configure uh, configure things, the standardization of how we go about deploying those things, all those kind of lead into you know I want to solve that problem well in one place, but I also want to make it easy to solve in the next place. I try to do it again. Yeah, I mean, I would say we've always had more devices than people. I would guess, yeah. maybe, but I would say the order of magnitude of number of devices versus people. I mean, I once worked on a network with twenty six hundred routers in each data center and there were nine data center fabrics um, and there were 40 people running the whole network basically I mean stem to stern that's pretty weird or pretty interesting I mean in, in different perspectives and that's not just automation that's also like you said repeatability and having the data to back it up understanding exactly why you're doing what you're doing from a data perspective now, there's a danger to the data perspective as well. There's a couple of dangers. The first danger is that we unintentionally stumble into complexity sometimes, right? We think we know this is going to work that way. And so, therefore, we just we, we don't really understand why it works a certain way. We just say, okay, well, we know this is going to work well because we tested it and we've seen it in production and we've seen it in large-scale production. So now we're just going to assume that that's the right thing to do. And then we don't start thinking about the complexity of the underlying system. And that's why I go back to the, you kind of need both. You kind of need to understand how it's doing what it's doing or why it's doing what it's doing, what, what goals you're trying to accomplish, as well as how it actually does it. I was just thinking about um, how, do, how does the iterative approach help with this or does it? Um, I, I think there's, uh, I, I, I tend to, myself in my own designs, tend to just bias toward trying to do more of the work up front and, and sort of front load it and, and understand in advance. And then, you know, next go around, maybe we'll do something better, but I got to get this right the first time. Uh, one thing I'm trying to change about my personal style is to learn from the environment as it is, as it is operating is is there a place for that approach in the data-driven um, world? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the things that we've, and, and I, I observed in some of my past operational life is just this, a, a principle of t-shirt sizing, uh, depending on each of the builds that you're putting out the door. And part of the, the concept of t-shirt sizing is thinking about the design in the context of the largest permutation of what you would build 
and then scaling that back down to smaller parameters that are easily incremented upwards where, you know, small easily built into medium, medium easily built into large, large easily built into extra large. And then saying that, hey, like once I've reached a point where a site, a design, a fabric has reached that extra large unit of capacity, I know I've now reached the point where the life cycle of that design needs to be iterated upon to the next one. So I think that in a lot of cases, the way I personally tend to reason through, like, how am I as thoughtful upfront as I can be to avoid needing to, you know, have variations of the next thing I do is really kind of at least attempting to build with the end in mind. If you can build to the largest permutation, maybe the first site you put out the door is a small one, but you know that it's at least built in such a way that it's going to be able to scale to the larger, the larger building blocks. And the reason why I think that's important is in a lot of cases, when you are building a, a smaller fabric, smaller site, smaller design, there might be, uh, you know, optimizations that you can make for that size of a fabric that, you know, if you're building with the end in mind, you might even cable things in a perceivably suboptimal way, but you've cabled them so that it's easy to increment capacity when you need to add to the medium site. So it really is, um, uh, you know, there's always going to be things where you put something out the door, you realize things didn't quite behave the way you wanted to, and there's going to be forced incrementation that occurs. But I think it's more of a, in all ways and all permutations where we can, like, think about things up front and try to build with the, the possibility of what that site could be one day. Yeah, one of the side effects of that, I think, is that um, you you uh, approach simplicity uh, a lot, uh, a lot more, how do I want to say this? You simplicity is is in your mind from the beginning if you're thinking about the very large world and that can and that it, you know and to me that drives it down all the way simplicity is still a good thing even in the even in the smaller designs um it's a lot i, I think it takes a little bit more intellectual horsepower to do it that way for sure yeah. uh, but then if you have that uh simple approach um, it benefits even the small designs i think yeah, and I think the, a part of this is about being, you know, if you're the guy who's designing the network, but not necessarily the one who's doing the automation against it, um, part of it is about being empathetic to the folks that are going to be doing the automation bits where, you know, I, I had it described to me by a developer at one point, and I really felt like this stuck for me is, um, you know, he essentially said, like, think about a change window that you're going through where, you know, the box that you're touching the nodes that are north and south of that device, you're not quite sure what the config is on them. And it might be non-standard to other sites that you've touched. Think about the pre and post checks that you as an operator will need to go through and the assumptions that you won't be able to make before you can touch that box or take it out of service. There's additional things that you need to validate because there is uncertainty you have north and south of that device. Now, by comparison, imagine your paradigm where you're going to touch that device, but you know with certainty that the north and south bound nodes are completely standardized and behave the same way as the previous site did. Now, ask the question of, if you're the guy automating that workflow, which is easier? So realistically for me, I think a lot of what it boils down to is, is that the, standardiz the standardization and simplicity of what you build from a fabric point of view offers the ability for people upstream of you who are building automation to 
make assumptions that they would otherwise not be able to make. And, you know, assumptions in software means that software gets simpler. And it's a virtuous cycle of like, not just, you know, building simplicity in the network infrastructure itself, but also make it where the things that are managing the network don't have to be more complicated than they need to be. I, I can see how that can make for efficiency. I could also see though, that one of the trade-offs there is you end up building an abstraction that is, is more likely to leak. Right. If you if you enable these assumptions, totally agree with what you're saying. Um, you enable everybody to work more efficiently. But then the trade off is you're, there's going to be a leak in the abstraction at some point and you have to figure out how to guard against that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of it like it's like route summarization and networking. Like the more you abstract something, the less visibility you have downstream to the thing that's happening there. And, uh, you know, there will probably be times that you need to leak a route or two. But, you know, we should all aspire to try to have those levels of segmentation where we can. Right. Yeah. And it's it's interesting that you bring that up about uh, leaky abstractions, Tom, because a lot of times that can be data-driven as well. Like the reason you find the leaky abstraction of TCP into the, or the leaky abstraction of the router as a, as a, as an opaque box and its impact on TCP is because you observe the effect of the tail drops in the output queue on the links running through your network. So a lot of times if you see things that you are actually looking at data and you're trying to understand your network from a data perspective, there are going to be times when you're going to run into it and go, wait, 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 why is this doing that? That doesn't make any sense to me. And then that will help you go back and chase those leaky abstractions. If you're not looking for that data in the first place, you're never going to find that stuff. So being data-driven can actually help there as well. Um, But there's another piece of this that's kind of a little bit... uh, a little bit frightening, perhaps, if you do as much in the way of looking at statistics and and correlations and stuff like that, which is that a big danger that I run into a lot of times that we don't seem to deal with a lot in our modern world is that correlation is not the same thing as causation. Um, I'm seeing a lot of that right now. I happen to be helping someone who's working on some public health stuff, and you know they're sending me these studies, and I'm like, yeah, but there are confounding factors, and we don't actually know that this relates to that necessarily. We're just looking at statistics and saying we do this, we push that button, and it comes out over here as that. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. And this is a lot of the reason that things like the Google Flu Project failed so badly is because they were looking at correlation and saying, well, we correlated that this particular area of the country is getting more flu than everybody else. Therefore, we can expect an outbreak, whatever, not necessarily true. There could be confounding factors. And so on the networking side, we've got to think the same way, right? We can't just say, oh, there's a correlation. Therefore, there must be causation there, right? Um, thoughts, Brooke? Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that you can also flip that around the opposite direction and say that, you know, there are certain well-understood failures that are going to happen in the network <laughs> that I know have causal effects on protocols upstream of them. Simple example, optic failing. You know, law large numbers, more optics I have in the network, higher likelihood something's going to go wrong. And one of the, um, and you know, I actually think that like Russ, some of the LinkedIn crowd actually put out some uh, collateral on this a while back as well. But like, you know, the example of applying like machine learning training algorithms against things like when an optic will fail. Once you've gotten to a point where the infrastructure itself is simple enough that you can start reasoning about, okay, if that optic dies, what is the impact of things upstream of it? You know, is that underlay BGP adjacency going to go down? Yeah, it will. 
What happens to overlay adjacencies that are over that? Have they hashed across that link? All these different things that you can essentially say where, you know, if I'm taking what I believe is a sound signal of failure that is well understood in the network, you know, there, there are causal links that you can make upstream beyond layers of abstraction that exist in the network. Because, I mean, I, I think that one of the things that, like, is getting harder at the moment is we have abstraction in all of these different places in the network at this point, especially larger scale networks where people are building with, you know, little components. Like I've heard you say before in the context of like underlay and overlay networking, like, you know, the overlay network is pretty abstracted from what's happening in the underlay. And in some cases from a network automation and management standpoint, understanding the relationship of failures in the underlay and how they correlate to the overlay. I think that's where, you know, taking some of those data points and mapping them back clearly where you're saying this is the root of a problem and not a symptom. All of those different areas that you can do that for the, uh, you know, the, the higher impact more often to happen type scenarios, you know, that has the, um, the positive effect of taking those, you know, those trouble tickets that end up in some front-end network operator's queue, you slowly incrementally take those things off of people and get to start focusing more on the the more interesting type of failures that would occur, not the things that just consume a lot of cycles for folks. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I in part of my philosophy degree was doing something about causality theory. So this is why this becomes interesting to me as well in a, in mm-hmm. a, in a kind of different way. But in that thinking about, okay, in order to truly understand causality or to make sure you've caused something, you really need to manipulate the inputs and hold at least one input and hold all other inputs the same. And then you know for a fact that that in particular input changing causes the, the output that you're expecting. And even then, it's not always certain that those two are directly related. But maybe we could think about adopting some of that type of thought into the networking world, like saying, well, I know that the large scale, of the the law of large numbers is going to mean I'm going to have more optics fail, right? But maybe what I do is I figure out how to take out the confounding factors. And I maybe need to start thinking more along those lines as a network engineer. The more I get towards using statistical analysis to understand the network um, in interesting ways. So I think that's, that's one thing to um, consider at any rate. One thing I was wondering, so I, I feel like we're talking about a fairly advanced mode of thinking, you know, talking about correlation and causation. And then I look back on some of the places I work, um, people were just just barely staying alive. Like if an optic failed and they replaced it before the other one in that bundle failed, they were actually doing pretty good. And so, so like those are two pretty polar opposite um, ways of doing this. What, what do you think the journey is between those two places? Like how, what are the steps of incremental improvement that take us from we're barely hanging on reactively managing the stuff to, oh, now we can start to reason about when the optic's going to fail. Yeah, I, I think that it's, uh, I feel like in some cases that the distance can be vast and sometimes it can be very small uh, as to uh, when, you're, when you're in a place of being overwhelmed as an operator. I mean, I know that for myself in the past, some of the, there's a level of trudging through the mud when you're in the initial paradigm of being overwhelmed to eventually getting to that place that you've actually, you know, adequately offloaded things from yourself to where you can look up and breathe and go, okay, that's now actually taken care of. What else can I go do that's more interesting? 
And a lot of that, I think, really comes down to organizational alignment that focusing on some of those repeatable tasks is actually important. Like in many cases, I think as as an operator, you can sometimes find yourself in a situation where you're going, I do this same transaction, the same thing multiple times a day or multiple times a week, and it consumes X amount of my time. And as a result, these other interesting things that I want to be focusing energy on, I don't have the ability to do so. You know, at the end of the day, if you don't have people upstream of you who are on board with the idea that it is worth the an upfront time investment to get those things off of your plate, um, to acknowledge that, like, hey, here's a trend of a repeatable thing that's occurring, that I have clear signals of how I can den- identify taking that away from me, whether that is, you know, codifying that into network automation or, you know, redesigning something in such a way that you have more deterministic failures that it doesn't hurt you as badly, or, you know, it gives you more time when those failures occur, or they happen less. All that really, to me, comes down to like at an organizational level, folks have to be aligned that that those are worthy of problems of solving. And I I think that in a lot of cases where you find that repeat, you know, negative feedback loop of, you know, those iterative things keep happening and they keep burying me. And now a new one's popped up and it just kind of compounds itself. The only way to break the cycle is to actually agree that it's worthy of breaking it. And I think that in so many cases, um, lack of alignment can be really harmful. And I, I think that like, I have found that in many cases where you have, you know, senior leaders upstream that don't necessarily, um, agree or understand that those seemingly trivial problems that happen every day are worthy of being solved is you almost have to kind of think of it in the context of like, what is the narrative I'm going to tell to that person upstream that helps them understand of where we will be on the other side of this if we take the time now to actually prioritize and do that work? Yeah, I I like that. I think the what you're saying, I think, is a vision for that, that we sometimes miss. Um, I, I think sometimes we get into, oh, I have a repeatable task and the, the same thing has happened to me two or three times. I need to automate it. I mean, most of us are intelligent enough to figure that out, but I think we get stuck there. We say, okay, well now I have a script doing this thing. Okay. I guess I'm done. Well now, and I've heard this from old crusty guys a lot. Well, okay. Now instead of going to routers, now I'm going to be in Python code, but nothing changed. I'm just maintaining this script. Well, that's not the whole vision. The whole vision is this is worth what you're doing because on the other side of it, there are going to be some efficiencies that never would have been available. We can get beyond now you're just maintaining Python versus CLI. I feel like is what you're saying. And that it's, you know, explaining that seems to be the the challenge. Yeah. And I think that when, when I speak to organizational alignment, I don't just mean that like, hey, your senior leader needs to be on board with what you as an individual, as an operator are doing. Um, like I've seen the inverse be true as well, where you have a senior leader who actually sees the forest for the trees and recognizes that end state of where like an institution could be. And none of the operational staff have bought into it because what they're looking at is all the mud they have to wade through to get there. And, you know, like I can say very on a very personal level, like I've been that guy before. I've been in a position where I've thought about like, hey, man, it'll take me 30 seconds to go add a link to a lag bundle. Like that's not that hard a problem for me as a network operator to go solve. If you're going to make me go through a process of defining all of the pre and post checks that I need to validate that today are human driven um, and not something that's being reasoned about in software, 
if you're going to make me take the time to go write a Python script to actually go about provisioning that change and making it repeatable for the infrastructure, you know, what I feel in the day-to-day kind of grind of what's going on is you just put more work on me that I could have solved quickly. And, you know, I have, you know, been borderline one of the people who, you know, obstructed or disagreed that that type of thing should occur until we hit an inflection point where enough of the folks, um, enough of the folks that were operating the network and enough of the people in the organization crossed that phase where a lot of those scripts started to exist when you needed to do that thing. A lot of those pre and post checks already existed when you went to do that thing. And then all of a sudden the transaction of adding that link to a lag took as much time to do it from an automation standpoint as it did to do it from a human driven standpoint. And now all of a sudden you begin to get into this virtuous cycle where time begins to get freed up when you need to go and repeat that across a hundred sites. Right. And I think that's the key, right? Is that you have to be doing it more than once in order to make it worthwhile uh, more, you know, and you've got to decide at some point, when is it do? when am I doing this enough to be concerned with automating it rather than, uh, you know, just leaving it, uh, leaving it as something that's a one-off that I just do because I just do it. Um, and I think that's true when we go to automate our own personal stuff too. I mean, you hear stories of people who've automated everything in their lives and you're like, yeah, but you make coffee once a day and you really set up an S&P server to make coffee at the right time. I, I mean, did it because I could. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are probably easier ways to solve that problem. I mean, maybe, I don't know, buy a coffee maker with a timer on it. I, you know, maybe, maybe that's just me. So, yeah. So I think this also runs into another area, which is that, you notice when we talk about this, we talk about knowing why things happen and knowing the business side of them and the data-driven side of understanding what's going on and what the impact is. What we haven't talked about at all is configuration. And there's a reason for that. Um, For my mind, configuration is kind of something of the past. We really ought to let the machine do the configuring if there is a configuration to be made. Um, I mean, I hate to say it, but Bay Networks many years ago actually used SNMP as their primary CLI. I don't know if you remember this or not, Brooks, but if you wanted to get into a Bay router and configure things, you had to actually go to the CLI and type in the the SNMP string that you were trying to get to. It would take you to a sub-enable mode that would take you to that particular section, and then you would have to type in the correct SNMP string to configure the router. And it was all done through SNMP. And that seems really stupid today, but in many ways, I mean... That's almost where you want to be. You almost want to make it where it's easier to automate it than it is to CLI it. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I, I think that what you're what you're speaking to there, I think, also comes back to um, an element of organizational and personal alignment. Because I've also been the person who, at you know, for a a period of time, the place that I derived my self worth. And the thing that I thought that made me valuable to a place was aptitude on the command line. And I think that that is a super important thing that we all collectively acknowledge as we talk about moving towards a world where we're saying being an expert on the CLI is not as important. Being an expert on repeatable interactions to a CLI probably is. And 
acknowledging that that can be a threatening thing to people on an individual level when that's the thing that they derive their self-worth from. And, you know, I, I think that for anyone that's trying to do the convincing of why it's worthwhile to make that paradigm shift, it's to illustrate to folks that um, that may be where you derive what you think makes you important or, you know, what you derive self-worth from, but think about what your day-to-day experience will be running a network if we can get to the other side of this. And, you know, the way you were interfacing with the system was via CLI one day, the way you could be interfacing with the system tomorrow could be with upstream automation and orchestration systems that you build more of your expertise around understanding how those things work than you do about the nuts and bolts of which CLI command does what. I have a, um, this ties into a, a personal thing of mine. I, you're the company that you're, that is paying your salary or however you're being compensated. They're not, they're not paying. I mean, they asked you in your interview, if you could do a CLI, blah, 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 whatever, depending on the level of, 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 of position that you're in, but that's not, yep. that might be what they interviewed you for, but that's not what they're paying you for. What they're paying you for is business outcomes. And, um, the business doesn't, I, I think cares a whole lot less than we do, um, about how good we are at the CLI. I, the, the way that I cured myself of this with CLI was I just went to, no, went to another vendor and picked up that CLI and I picked it up pretty fast. And I was like, that was pretty easy. If it was that easy, it probably was not that valuable of a thing to begin with. So just in my own mind, you know, CLI is an, a good tool. It's an, it's, it's, it's an important, important tool, but that's not where the value is. Um, at least that's how I figured it out for myself. Well, and, and I think we're, we're starting to expose the, the limitation of a CLI only approach because we're touching networks more often now as folks are moving towards more microservices based architectures and you have things that are spinning up and spinning down that, you know, consume an overlay tunnel, have tenant based configuration, have all these different things that like the network needs to be touched every time one of those machines needs to do a thing. Um, I, I think that a lot of times we, we talk about things in the context of how they, you know, what are the cool kids doing? Like that's, that's how I tend to think of it is like, what are the cool kids evangelizing in, you know, any type of nanog forum or anything else that I too could try to do myself. And I think what's important is to recognize that some of these things that we're talking about in the industry and some of the directions we're going from the operational standpoint Folks aren't doing it because it's cool. They're doing it for survivability reasons. They're doing it because it's really the only choice. Yeah. And and I think there's a there's a way to approach this, which is not to approach it as, look, we're going to take away the skill set that you have. La la, mm-hmm. na na, you know, too bad for you. You don't know how to do, you only know how to do CLI, so your value is no longer. It's more along the lines of saying, well, look, if you can free yourself, from the CLI, then we can figure out how to use your time doing something different. And that something different might be as simple as doing data analysis on what the network's actually doing. And the only problem is going to be there is that, well, maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe you're just not the type of person who likes to do that. Maybe you like to do the CLI stuff. And I think that runs back into another problem, which is that oftentimes we like the CLI because it gives us a cape. But at any rate, it gives us control, touchy-feely control and a cape. (laughs) Everyone loves a firefighter. Yep, they do. They all love, we all love firefighters. 
I used to say my my most favorite job in the networking industry when I not when I first started, but when I was on the global escalation team at Cisco. That was so awesome because no matter how bad the network was, you've got the entire company at your back when you walk in. They're going to fix the problem. And number two, or they're going to write it off, one of the two. They're going to write the customer off or they're going to, but it's not going to be your decision to make whether to fix the problem or write the customer off. So the hard, to, the only hard decision to make in that situation is not your decision. But on the other side, you've got the entire customer beh- company behind you if they decide not to write the customer off. And then on the other side, when you walk out having solved the problem, which it wasn't really you who solved the problem, it was, the, it was everybody behind you. You are the guy wearing the cape, right? And you look awesome on paper. And well, so and I think you I think you're getting at something to the uh when we say that we're we're transitioning into a realm where interfacing with CLI is not the thing that folks are doing as often now, that is not in any way saying that networking expertise is not needed. You can't run a network with only software developers. You have to have people who actually understand how the network itself behaves and works because Without having that level of understanding, you can't codify any of those behaviors into software in the first place. So I think what, in short, what I'm saying is, is that uh, your network expertise still matters. The way that you interface with the system to apply it is changing. Right. But the way you interface with the, to go further than that, the way you interface with the system to apply that expertise is not just knowing how something works. And not just the automation system, but also being focused on the data-driven side and actually seeing what you're going to do, right? What's actually going to happen when you get in the network and, and trying to understand how to make use of that data in ways that make sense. And then that drags us back into, you know, being more than a network engineer. You have to know at least something about statistics and about causal theory and stuff like that. It's a great book by the way, called Making Things Happen, which was the primary book um, that I learned about causality or uh, manipulability theory, because uh, that's actually where it's proposed. It's the book it's proposed in. So, yeah. So, Brooks, I think that's a really good place to stop. So, do you blog or anything? Uh, no, for the most part, I don't. I don't, I don't have bum. anywhere to point anyone to other than my LinkedIn. <laughs> you're, you're a bum. But it's okay. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> uh, okay. So great. So Tom dropped off, and he's he's you know in an alternate location, having problems with his Wi-Fi. We'll have to give Tom a hard time about that the next time he's on. Um, <laughs> about that, and we're going to give him a hard time about the blog because he still isn't blogging regularly, which you know stinks. Well, anyway. So um, Brooks, are you also on? Twitter at all, or just LinkedIn? Is that the primary place? I, I am pr- primary uh, point is LinkedIn, not Twitter. Right. Twitter. Cool. Awesome. Great. All right. And, um, you know, I'm Russ White. You can always find me at little11.tech here on the hedge, history of networking, blah dee da dee da dee da dee da I write enough for Brooks, Tom, and I, all three, every week. That's <laughs> exactly right. 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 <laughs> I make it my personal <laughs> mission to write enough to cover for all the network engineers who should be talking and don't. <laughs> I'm dependent upon you, Russ. <laughs> well, thanks, Brooks, for joining us. And uh, we'll catch you next time on The Hedge. Thank you, sir. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.